Imagine, a podcast series by Imagine Theatre. Hello again and welcome to episode 56 of this podcast series. And after 55 episodes of talking to performers, creatives and others, the tables are well and truly turned. For more information, go to their website at www.imaginetheatre.co.uk. Now, I hope you enjoyed the last episode where we looked at the importance of pantomime and the production process through the eyes of the theatre manager. Remember that that and all of the other previous episodes are still available to download. All you have to do is go where you normally get your podcasts from. And while you're at it, make sure you subscribe to the series so that you don't miss out in the future. Now, I said at the very beginning, the tables have been turned because this time, Imagine's managing director, Steve Bowden, is going to be asking me the questions. Is that a good idea, Steve? Well, that's a very good question, Martin. We will find out in the next 20, 25 minutes. But you have probably been one of the longest serving members of the Imagine team because you joined us back in 2003. And you've done such fantastic work on the stage and also supporting us as a company, but also doing the podcast series. We thought we ought to let people know a little bit more about you. And so no doubt they will vote with their fingers if they're not impressed. (laughs) So I just thought it'd be really good to go back to the beginning of obviously your involvement with the industry. But I suppose one of the questions that you always asked us and some of our earlier guests, which was fascinating, was first introductions to this world that we work in of Panto. When did you first see Panto and where was it and how did that all come about? Well, I started seeing Panto when I was a child, as most people do. And my first Pantos, I think the very first Panto, although I can't be absolutely sure, was Robinson Crusoe with Ken Dodd. (coughs) And that was at the Theatre Royal in Nottingham because that's where we went. I did see some early uh, Nottingham Playhouse Pantos as well. But that was the one I remember. And I remember Ken Dodd being hilariously funny. Uh, the show going on for oh, days and hours and hours. Yeah. And I was probably, I don't know, around 10 years old. But what really blew me away was they had a, a group of acrobats called the Acromaniacs. And they did all sorts of tumbling and tricks and vaulting and so on. But one of them obviously doubled for Ken Dodd. So for me as a kid, I thought it was amazing that Ken Dodd was doing all these amazing tumbling stunts and so on. And obviously I worked it out after that. But that sort of whet the appetite. And then when I was a teenager, I joined an amateur company. Yeah. And my first ever panto role was as a, an ugly sister. And then I subsequently went on to write and direct as well. This was in a youth theatre back in the day. That's how it got me, even early on. It's funny, isn't it, how those early connections, either as an audience member or getting involved with local amateur dramatics, really sets the tone for Mm. how we all move forward. So at what point did you go, actually, I'd quite like to do this as a career? (laughs) I don't really know if I made that decision, to be honest. (laughs) What what happened was I, I was I was blown away by it and it was that audience reaction, that sort of interaction between stage and auditorium that really that hooked me. I was doing a lot of youth theatre and other things as well, and then decided to do a performing arts degree. Now at that time, this is a long time ago, <laughs> drama schools were not really offering degree qualifications back then, I'm pretty sure. And my parents were keen for me to get an academic qualification, a degree qualification that would stand me in good stead and give me something to fall back on. Also, 
I came from a working class background and without any local authority educational grant I wouldn't really have been able to go into any further education and those grants were more difficult to come by for drama school courses rather than degree courses at university so that was the road that I went down. I had auditions at both drama schools and universities. In the end I looked at two vocational courses at universities well, there were polytechnics at the time. Uh, Middlesex was one and Leicester was the other. And it was the Leicester course that I chose in the end, now to Montfort University. And I never really regretted it. I never really looked back. But once I left, <laughs> my career went completely sideways when I when I'd qualified and, um, and left the university. So I never really made that conscious decision to do Panto, if I'm honest. No, it's funny, isn't it? How I mean, I utterly loved theatre as a child and loved going to the theatre and joined lots of local amateur dramatic societies. But knowing that actually I wanted to perform, I didn't want to perform, but wanted to produce, you don't naturally fall into this sometimes. Mm. It just, just occurs. So you, you did your formal training mm. and obviously had a love of Panto from an early age. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that you went into a frock fairly early on in your panda career. I was 16, I think. <laughs> was it always the role of Dame that you saw an affinity with, or you just enjoyed that character? No, I played comic as well, um, but it was those two. It was that sort of rapport with the audience, that comedy, you know, taking the fourth wall down, because yeah. I was doing a lot of other things as well. I was doing some Brecht and um, musical theatre and other things, but it didn't give me the same sort of buzz, that engagement with the audience. So, and obviously... Damon Comic are the two that really opened that door for you. So that was why I think that really attracted me. And the idea of thinking on your feet, clearly. Yeah. Which, which I assumed ties in with the fact that you, very early on in your performing professional career, were able to go and work in radio. How did that come about? Well, this is a bizarre story. I, I did some assistant stage manager work when I qualified and um, uh, Oxford Playhouse and places like that. And then I had some children's theatre theatre and education jobs um, and the problem was Steve I'll be brutally honest with you I am just over 60 now but when I was 20 I looked 60 then because I lost my hair pretty young and I was going for castings I was hearing the same message you don't look right you look too old for this role so that was a problem and so somebody suggested to me that I should try radio drama and radio drama in the BBC at that time all centred around Pebble Mill in Birmingham. The artists right. came from there and lots of other uh, Radio 4 drama was recorded at Pebble Mill. And I knew a couple of people through my course, who, uh, a guy called Simon Carter, who was a regular in radio drama, who was one of the lecturers on, on my course. So they said, why don't, why don't you get involved in that? So that's what happened. And I went along... Uh, to Pebble Mill and by accident I bumped into a former Radio 2 producer and a former BBC World Service <laughs> producer and they were interested in me doing continuity announcements. Goodness. So they then told me about another man uh, called Roger Eames who'd been at Radio 2 but was then the programme organiser at BBC Radio Leicester and they said why don't you go along uh, and see Roger and see what might happen. So I did. I went along, I pretty immediately got some freelance continuity uh, announcing work and stuff like that. And then it just happened. I just drifted into it. 
And I spent 37 years with the BBC working all over the country, but predominantly in Leicester, by complete accident, really. <laughs> and that's what's amazing, isn't it? Because I'm sure these stories that we all recount of getting into the industry and the longevity of engagements, I'm not so sure that that happens anymore. It's very unusual for people in our industry to perhaps have that stability yeah. that was afforded in those heady days back in the 80s and the early 90s. And we might realise that that's part of the problem with our industry, that people just feel that they don't have any security and therefore they duck in and out of it, which yeah. you know, which isn't necessarily great. Alongside your radio, you've always been able to keep Panto running. You've always been able yeah. to get that time out at Christmas. And am I right, some of the early Pantos that you did professionally were back at De Montfort Hall? They were, 1990s, actually. And so... Peter Pan was the first, I think, with Brian Blessed playing Captain Hook. And then Cinderella with Steve McFadden from EastEnders. And the companies that I worked for at that time, uh, one was uh, called Montrose. And Montrose at that time were the, the first company in this country, really, to bring Australian soap stars over right. from Neighbours Home and Away and others, uh, Prisoner Cell Block H and, <laughs> and so on. So there were lots and lots of, of Aussie soap stars. And they were rather like today with reality TV personalities. Back in the 90s, the Aussie soaps were massive, absolutely massive. Yeah. So that was a, a lot of that. Wendy Craig uh, was in uh, Cinderella as well, Fairy Godmother. Then working with legends like Alfred Marks, who was Abenaza in Aladdin. So that sort of whet the appetite again. Obviously grateful for the BBC allowing me to take some time out to do it. Although, I have to say, in the first couple of years, Steve, I was doing a mid-morning show and then going and doing a matinee and an evening panto performance five days a week. <laughs> that is an exhausting schedule. Yeah, I couldn't do it now. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I guess at some point in the 90s, the pantos at De Montfort Hall stopped and they refocused on music and touring musicals. And I think I'm right in saying that around about that sort of time, you went over to Loughborough Town Hall. I did. And there was a link there with a guy called Jeff Rowe, who was the man who created the Leicester Comedy Festival and has just literally this year stood down after uh, looking after it for all these years. He was working at Loughborough Town Hall at the time, doing the programming and so on. And he knew me from seeing me at the De Montfort Hall and said, would I come along and have a chat with the producers at Loughborough Town Hall at that time, which was extravaganza. Yeah. And they had a look at me, and they obviously <laughs> couldn't find anybody else. <laughs> so that was the first of 15 years at that venue, working for them, um, a company called Barbara Lunt that came in afterwards, who had a background in, ch in children's theatre, really. Yes. Uh, Open Hand was their children's theatre company. And then... Some company came in, I don't know whether it was Imagine or Wish or Telltale or whatever. <laughs> All of the above. And that was just such an incredible, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for you because you didn't have to continue using me, but you did. And that's where the Imagine story began for me. And it was an amazing 10 years we did at Loughborough Town Hall. And I think, you know, the, the development in the building and the development in the staff and the development, I think, of the Panto generally, it, it grew and grew to a seven-week run when we left yeah, that venue. Know. And, it, you know, it's still, you know, under Little Wolf's uh, ownership of the Panto, still doing great guns. And, and that's a, an amazing example of what a local town and its Panto can do to support theatre in the area. You know, it's immensely popular. Of all the pantos that we did at Loughborough, 
Are there any that you vividly remember as being either a highlight or moments that you remember where you go, uh, how did that happen? There were, I, I've got so many happy memories, really happy memories of the shows that we did there. I think the venue was incredible. Uh, in terms of the size of the venue, you could literally see the whites of every audience member's eyes. And it was big enough to have a reasonable size audience, but small enough to be intimate in a strange way. And the first show was just amazing. I, I, I still got so many f- memories of that. And of course, I had a wardrobe on that was Dawn Althwaite, who's still with you here now. That's right. Bringing people together and keeping them with us. And it yeah. was Aladdin. The first one was that's Aladdin. And, and for me, that's my favourite pantomime anyway. So I've got so many happy memories of that. That was the first time that we worked together. You directed that show as well. So that's a great memory. I mean, there were so many great shows though, Steve. Yeah, we did. And I think what was brilliant is we'd have those first few weeks of schools that were just packed. And we always say the school attendance at Panto is, is often those kids' first opportunity to get into a theatre, let alone see a Panto. And they're so important. But I think you could tell the excitement in the auditorium at the start and then the memories that those kids had. And that you, you'd hit, you know, they'd either come back the next year or the schools would write to us and we'd get letters saying what a great time and how those, those memories would last a lifetime. I think it's true. We obviously did the 10 years at... Uh, Loughborough, mm. and then we were able to go through for a, a year at Leamington, another okay. L venue, before you were able to then pick up the Dame Crown and work with us over at Panto at De Montfort Hall, which was like full circle. Yeah. And, and that for us was one of the early Pantos where we started to use celebs, yeah. like we mentioned earlier, yeah. and we had a few good celebs in the, in the Leicester De Montfort Hall Panto. You've worked with so many people and you've interviewed so many people over your career, is there anybody that you have come across who you have either worked with in Panto or you've interviewed where you've, where you've thought you are the epitome of what Panto and celebrity profile casting is today? I think the people that I've interviewed, and there are so many Panto legends, uh, some that I've never met or interviewed. Um, I, I remember seeing people like Hugh Lloyd, uh, Terry Scott in Panto, never had a chance to meet them. Danny LaRue, I did work with, I did a sort of summer season with Danny LaRue, and he was a very different sort of dame. But, I I mean, there are so many people, I'm trying to rack my brains now. Larry Grayson, um, who was absolutely, who loved pantomime. Did he? Because he was a Midlander as well, wasn't he? Was he from the Midlands area? He was from Nuneaton. Yeah, so perfect. Um, He loved pantomime. Bill Maynard, who's a Leicester man as well, who loved pantomime. He's a real traditionalist, though. He would not have panto meddled with at all. (laughs) And then of the people that I've actually worked with in pantomime, well, just so many. So many friends for life as well, by the way. But, you know, from jobbing actors with real talent who bring something extra to panto to those celebrity castings you mentioned and I go back to Alfred Marx from that Aladdin back in the 1990s I'd grown up watching him on television he was on regular programs at that time like Joker's Wild a lunchtime sort of comedian quiz with Barry Cryer and the two team captains of Ted Ray and Arthur Askey to watch him in front of an audience was a masterclass in itself people like Wendy Craig and Brian Blessed but in recent years You know, the celebrity casting has been incredible at Imagine and, you know, very carefully done as well. I've had the pleasure of working with, you know, comedians like Paul Burling and John Clegg and Kev Orkian. I don't want to miss anybody out because they've all been incredible. Magicians like Matt and Tash, the Conjurers, who brought something completely different to Panto. 
So they've all got something to add. Careful casting is always important, whether they're celebrities or not. And, you know, there are just so many of them, Steve. Yeah, there are. I think what we find is that Panto constantly has to evolve. We talk about this a lot, that we're always looking for the next new thing or the next new person to bring to Panto. And I think that's part of what we do. In order to do Panto, you have to have an incredibly supportive family. Mm. And clearly, Louise is incredibly supportive of you being absent for most Christmases. And your son, Jack. I remember meeting Jack when he was wee, when we were at Loughborough. And, And now he's moved across into the business as well. Do you think it rubs off? Have I got this to look forward to with my daughter, who is currently training in performing arts? Is this what happens? I think it is, because they can see the joy you you have in your life by doing shows. And it was not anything that we ever pushed him into doing. He just came and saw it. His eyes were wide open in order, not just the panto, but in theatre in general, he loved it. Jack was born in 1996 and he was two years old and he came to see a panto that I was doing then for Extravaganza. I can't remember what I said to the audience, but I was Dame and they shouted back, hello, sexy knickers. So that worked ever so well, particularly in the school shows, because kids, as you know, love Love knickers, bogeys, all those sort of words. (laughs) So I, on this particular show, Jack was in the audience, two years old, with his mum, Louise. And I said, whatever I said, the audience shouted back, hello, sexy knickers. It went quiet. And Jack, in the audience, shouted, that's not sexy knickers, that's my dad. (laughs) And that probably brought the house down, I assume. It did. I mean, he obviously had a knack. Uh, Even at two years old, he thought I could get a gag out of this. And uh, (laughs) he doesn't remember it now, but I do. It's one of those sort of magical moments. That's the beauty of Panto. You just go with it, don't you? You do, and nobody can prime what a child is going to say. And that that child is absolutely absorbed in the world that we have created. And they will just go with it. And that's, that's the freedom that they are given in the art form. So we've obviously talked about Panto throughout all of these podcasts. And one of the questions that you've asked us is, what is our favourite Panto? So I wonder, can I ask you, what's your favourite Panto and why? I've already said, I think, haven't I, Aladdin. But it's a selfish reason because I think Widow Twanky is the perfect dame. It's the dame that I've enjoyed playing and I think I've done it maybe six times. It's the dame that I've enjoyed playing more than any other because... She's a warm, friendly, uh, matronly, motherly uh, sort of character, which I, I think is the perfect dame. And we've talked about different types of dames on this series, haven't we? Yeah. Whether they're drag artists or whether they're obviously men in a frock. And that's definitely me, the Les Dawson uh, tradition, if you like. I don't look good enough in tights or whatever to be a female impersonator, so I'll never be a drag artist. <laughs> but also Aladdin has... All of the elements, not every panto has all the elements. It may have many of them. But for me, Aladdin has the drama, uh, the adventure, fabulous effects. I remember sitting on that magic carpet, uh, flying high in the sky. Do you remember the song? Yes, I do. Um, You know, that is magical. Obviously, the Cave of Wonders, the lamp itself. It just has everything for me. And the perfect comic i think wishy-washy is the perfect comic many people talk about buttons yeah i think there's a lot more pathos with buttons because of that relationship with cinderella but in terms of slapstick and comedy and rapport with the audience i think twanky and wishy-washy are just the perfect combination you're right and aladdin is the perfect subject for all that pantomime spectacle pantomime adventure pantomime drama comedy all those elements are in it Pantomime is obviously a combination of story, of music, dance and sketches and things like that. We do obviously a lot of fun sketches. Have you got any of the sketches that we've done that you know you remember particularly well? 
I love the song sheet, if I'm honest. That's one of the uh, the key areas of fun. And, you know, I love the element of surprise that you get when you get the kids up on stage. I think anybody who does that loves that. But I like to be kept on my toes, you know, by whatever the kids might say or do. And we've had some really interesting kids. We always said in the dressing room, we get into the end of the show, things have gone really well. The audience are loving it. And then we would say... All we need now is four great kids. <laughs> and, they, and they generally are, because kids love it, don't they? They do, and you never know what they're going to say. And that's the great thing. You can't preempt the kids. No. And some of the responses they, they, they bring up just floor performers as experienced yeah. like yourself yeah. as much as the audience. And I think you're right. And I think it's a really important part of Panto, because those kids remember it. When we're working in the business and we work with so many people and there are so many returners, we obviously make lifelong friends mm other people that you've worked with that you still keep in touch with yeah lots lots and lots and that may be somebody you know you see on a regular basis it might be somebody that you correspond with a lot on social media or it could be somebody that you bump into every now and again and I think the Panto Awards was one of the most amazing things for keeping in touch with people you're bumping into people Kate Roddy, who we bumped into at the Panto Awards, who was in Sleeping Beauty at Loughborough Town Hall back in the day, who then subsequently married Ben Roddy, who is now a dame, who was a comic at the time. And, you know, the Panto family is incredible, isn't it, for people coming together, making lifelong friends, bumping into each other. And when you bump into somebody you haven't seen, Kev Orkian was there as well at the Panto Awards. You bump into somebody you haven't seen, for maybe years and yet it feels like you just pick up where you left off because you've got so much in common especially if you shared a dressing room with that person because you go through quite a lot in a panto run (laughs) and and you you are a family and you do you end up dining together you end up socializing together as well as working together and it's pretty intense going isn't it 12 show weeks yeah and you go into the routines i mean we talked about the the song sheet but when you go into the routines and I was talking to you before we started this podcast about the squeaky floorboard <laughs> in Dick Whittington, which for anybody who hasn't seen, probably has no idea what it is, but it's so funny um, and it's so simple. And the concept. It? And I think what we've learned is that, you know, to take a simple concept into the rehearsal room with great practitioners like yourself and the comics and the stooges, we can have a lot of fun in the rehearsal room and hone that, that yeah. very simple premise of a squeaky floorboard. And that is, that's a perfect example as well. They say the secret to comedy is timing. And that is all about timing, isn't it? That there is nothing. It's a very visual gag with one basic sound effect and just shows you how simple comedy can really work. Yeah. And that's what makes it timeless. And that's also what I think makes Panto so accessible for every age because the type of comedy and the type of language that we use in Panto is so accessible, which is, I think is why it's been around for as long as it has been. Yeah, We talked a little bit about Dame and your style of Dame, which is very much a a bloke in a frock. (laughs) I'm very keen to ask, as you've got older and and the glasses come out, does that mean putting the makeup on is slightly trickier? It is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because obviously I wear glasses all the time now. You can't really wear them when you put makeup (laughs) on. Absolutely. So that is not easy. And I think as well that you do find the long show runs more challenging um, as you get older you bring experience to the role I think that's that's one key thing 
but you certainly change. I've always tried to play the Dame with a lot of energy because I think it, it needs it. <laughs> but if you've watched me over you know, 32 years or whatever it is, you probably think it's not quite so energetic anymore. <laughs> and when, you, when you're getting ready as Dame, is there a moment when you go, okay, she's complete, that's her character? Is it putting on the wig? Is it doing the makeup? Is it just standing in front of the mirror with the whole, the whole costume and the whole image created? Is it that then you go, okay, I'm now into yeah. my Dame mode? Do you know, that's interesting because I've never really analysed how dames get ready uh, because obviously, unless you do Ugly Sister, you don't really see that other person anyway. But So I I tend to put on uh, underwear and boobs and so on first and then put the makeup on after that and then into the costume and then the wig is always the final thing. And for me, it's just nice to have hair for <laughs> a few weeks of the year. But I think it's probably, you know, when you've got the wig on, that is the dame complete. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I've always shared a dressing room as well. And some dressing rooms are bigger than others. And it's quite tight at times when you're trying to get made up and put, put costumes on, you know, because all the costumes are generally in the dressing room as well. And as you know, they're pretty massive, some of them. So once you've got everything on, the wig is on, then... That's it. I'm ready to go. Are there any superstitions or rituals or anything that you do or don't do before you go onto the that stage? Is it do you have an order of things that you must do? Not really, I have to say, although I am always a little suspicious because you know, working with people in the early days, I worked with a dame called Peter Thorne who, you know, many people may remember, um, and also people like Alfred Marx, who I mentioned before. And some of those people were fairly keen to not do things like whistling backstage and so on, which we we know as, and and the Scottish uh, Shakespeare play and things like that. But yeah, not really any, any of my own. Just the order of doing things. I'm quite formulaic in the order that I do things, getting ready. I did for a while like to walk the set a little bit before you know, just to get the atmosphere right before, but I, I stopped doing that after a few years because the crew would get annoyed with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you just let us set, please? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that's great. So we've talked about Panto. Your life outside of Panto, now you're not working at the BBC full-time, you, you enjoy working with Leicester Tigers. Yeah, I'm obviously doing the podcast for you, which I'm thoroughly enjoying, but I've been with the Leicester Tigers now as their stadium announcer for 18 years. Can you believe that? And they, again, they've been really supportive because obviously the season carries on over Christmas and they've allowed me to take, it's probably between two and three games off over the Christmas period to come and do Panto. But I've loved sport my entire life. In fact, I was a Leicester Tigers fan before I had anything to do with the club going back to the 1970s when I was still at school. And some of the famous players who played for them and for England at the time have now become good friends through working with the club. And my job is really to guide the fans through the afternoon. So all the pre-kickoff stuff, information uh, and things like that. And there are certain features that they have built into that. A lot of the stuff during the game, the management of the game, explaining what's going on, who scored the try, what the score is, stuff like that. Who's coming on, who's going off as a replacement, that sort of thing. But at halftime, there's even a bit of a panto element, Steve. of course. Because 
We have an awful lot of activities during the half-time interval. It's only 10 minutes, but it's pretty full on. Uh, it might be presentations, it might be interviews, but we have certain games that are included in the half-time break. There is, is one as an example where fans have to race each, each other up and down the pitch blowing a rugby ball with a garden <laughs> leaf blower. Okay. And then the big one is called the Ultimate Big Boot and it's a machine which was invented to help players in their practice because in rugby a lot of kicking is done. Players will have to catch the ball coming down from a great height. So they have this machine that just repeatedly fires ball high into the, into the sky. So we decided to turn that into a game. 10 people in a team will come onto the pitch and f 10 balls will be fired into the air. They have to catch as many as they can. They're not allowed to put them down. They can't drop them. They have to keep hold of them. And that can be in rain. It can be in wind. <laughs> and the funniest one I can ever remember was 10 vicars, 10 actual vicars, not people in costumes. Real vicars. Real vicars came out in their cassocks, in the full garb, in muddy conditions, <laughs> slipping all over, falling over each other. <laughs> this is panto. This is any absolute effort. panto. It, reminiscent of, if you're old enough to remember, It's a Knockout, which was on television back in the day. But yeah, so I, I love it. And it's just something that I, I've sort of grown into and, and really enjoy. Is there anything in theatre, any genre, not just panto, are there any roles or anything that you look at and you think, you know what, that, I, I would love to do that? There are lots of roles that I would love to do, but would never be able to. Jean Valjean in Les Mis. You know, things like that. I would love to have a go at Edna Turnblad in Hairspray, if I'm honest. Or Mrs Doubtfire. Oh my goodness, yes. Again, Mrs Doubtfire is, is beyond me, I think. But Edna... That could be a dream role to do. You could give them your best, Edna. <laughs> Martin, 20 years, so many pantos, so many memories. Thank you so much for everything that you've done for us and for the industry and for the people of the East Midlands. And let's look forward to many more. No, thank you, Steve. I've thoroughly enjoyed the past 20 years with Imagine and this podcast. But I'm afraid that's about it for now. Thank you once again for supporting the series. Don't forget to subscribe, though, so that you don't miss out in the future. And next time, I'm going to be chatting to an Olivier Awards Be Inspired champion who's been championing theatre for many years and was there at the turn of the millennium when the company we now know as Imagine began, Mark Thorburn. So don't miss that and make sure you join me, Martin Ballard, next time for episode 57. Thank you for listening to the latest edition of Just Imagine, the podcast series from Imagine Theatre. And you can find out more by going to www.imagintheatre.co.uk.